In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity. Welcome back to another week on the Catholic Toolbox, the art of practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manasseh, here as we equip you with practical tools to live your faith in our modern world of today. And what's very relevant for today is to be inclusive. But what does it mean to be inclusive? Now, we've included this week Dr. Robert Haddad in our show to be inclusive. <laughs> but we want to talk about conversion as well. Welcome back, uh, Dr. Robert Haddad. Yeah, thank you, George. It's always good to be back. I'm very honoured with your invitation. So happy to be here and happy to discuss this topic, which is radical inclusion or radical conversion, or is it a balance of both? Well, let's try to get the balance here. So <laughs> we've included you here tonight, but let's start off by defining these terms. What is conversion? Let's start off with conversion here on a more positive note, or relating to the gospel. What is conversion? What does it mean to be converted? It means to change. It means to turn around. Um, the a Greek word is metanoia, which means change of mind. Okay? We're heading in one direction. It's generally a selfish, lustful, greedy, uh, violent, murderous direction. And then we're confronted with Christ in his teachings, where God's actual grace enlightens us. Our intellect moves our will and he works with us freely. And these are invitations, inspirations to change. And hence we turn around and now we walk a new path and we walk the path of imitating Christ. And that's conversion. That's metanoia. And there's a Hebrew word for it. If you just give me a moment, I'll grab my little Hebrew book here. And the word in Hebrew, because I'm trying to pick up some Hebrew words, um, is shuv, shuv. And uh, I'm, I'm, excuse me here, it's um, shuv means to turn back. So it's metanoia in Greek and shuv in Hebrew, to turn back or to turn around. Mm -hmm. And this is what conversion is. And it's compulsory. It's a prerequisite. It's a necessity. Jesus didn't say to St. Mary Magdalene, go away and keep sinning. Mm -hmm. yeah. So go away and sin no more. In other words, you've been forgiven, right? It's a grace. Now, follow me, sin no more. That's conversion. And so, so there are conditions 
for following Jesus Christ. Of course, we're all included. We're all called, and, and no matter in what state we are, to, to come to Christ and to repent, which is to change our way and sin no more and follow Christ. Um, mm. so, so the conditions are repentance and changing your way of life permanently. There's a lot of misrepresentation out there at the moment, both in and outside of the church. And there's a lot of um, downplaying the need for conversion on this basis, that God loves us unconditionally. Of course, God loves us unconditionally. The love of God is unconditional. And we get it. We understand that through being parents, especially. I love my children unconditionally. If my children were to go astray, I still love them. Right now, loving unconditionally, though, does not mean that we have an unconditional relationship with God. Christ lays down the the foundational condition. Repent and believe in the gospel. That is a necessity. That's a command. That's not an optional extra. That's not the cherry on top. That's the cake. And uh, this is not mentioned so often these days in much preaching and teaching. This is the problem we have. So we want to be inclusive. Uh, yes, Christ opened his arms on the cross to redeem all. That's the objective redemption. And that's for everybody without exception. It's, it, this is an authentic universalism. Christ died for all on the cross. Well, not Calvinists here. He didn't die just for the elect. He died for the all sinners, the whole of humanity, but not all are saved. We're not into this false universalism. Not all are saved. Why? Because not all say yes to God's grace, God's invitation, the objective redemption. This is a condition we have to fulfill. Repent, believe, turn around. So we could say that God's mercy is conditional. Well, initially, the cross is an act of mercy, and that's unconditional. Yeah. St. Paul says in the Romans, in the book, his letter to the Romans, I don't know the precise verse, I think it's in chapter 8, right? That while we were still sinners, God redeemed us. God sent Christ into the world. That sending of Christ into the world to redeem humanity was unconditional. It was a pure grace, a gift, born out of God's love, mercy and forgiveness the re objective redemption is unconditional though what, what flows from that for each and every one of us is an invitation to embrace the gift of christ what christ did for us on the cross and we do that by hearing by knowing by understanding and by saying yes repenting and believing so reception of so the subjective reception of the mercy of God, the gift of God in Jesus Christ is conditional. We have to uh, uh, move, we have to move our wills to say yes. Now, when we're infants and we're presented for baptism, okay, we can't make that decision. But uh, this the infant baptism shows forth uh, the graciousness of God uh, par excellence. We are restored to his friendship and his grace as a pure gift through no choice of our own, but the, our parents offer the faith on our behalf. It's given in lieu of the faith of our parents. But once we're of the age of reason, 
there's an obligation that rests with us to exercise our will positively, consciously in favour of God through Jesus Christ and to obey, obey. It's not faith alone, faith and obedience. And what did he command? Repent and believe in the gospel. You're going to hear me say that again and again and again because that is what I think is fundamentally forgotten by so many today. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like after the Second Vatican Council, we tipped over and uh, we, we we were a very sort of, we became very rigid culturally before the Second Vatican Council, where it was all about the rules, possibly in the habit, not in the reality of what the church taught, but in the cultural habit. But then I think after the Second Vatican Council, we threw the baby out of the bathwater, we tipped the cross and said, well, everyone's mm. welcome, no conditions. Uh, peace and love for all, and and uh, uh, and now it's it, it's as if there's no sin anymore in, mm. in some things that you hear. But I think we're overemphasizing the inclusiveness or the inclusion. Mm. You see disastrous things such as the synod uh, in Germany, you know, where they've mm. over included everybody, and they're on the brink of schism and threatening um, unity with the universal church. Well. Uh, Obviously, regarding the Second Vatican Council, and I worked hard to read all the documents. I've read the entire Second Vatican Council, and yeah. I found nothing in the Second Vatican Council documents that you know uh, can support the idea of um, inclusion without conditions or inclusion without repentance or the abolition of sin and sexual sin. This is all taught by people who quote who claim to be quoting the Second Vatican Council, but really what they're diffusing is this so-called spirit of the council, which is a pure fiction. Um, yes, well, you've mentioned Germany and what's happening there, and that's a real serious concern because there's an example of a national church, a large, powerful, uh, wealthy church, which is in not only in uh, threatening schism, it's in heresy, it's threatening schism, the majority is in heresy, not all of them. Uh, threatening schism, but in real decline. The church in Germany is shrinking by about 400,000 members a year through natural attrition. The death rate uh, is higher than the birth rate. Yep. And many hundreds of thousands within that 400,000, about 250,000 within that 400,000, who are just saying no and turning their backs on the church uh, permanently. And, and if they're trying to reverse that by liberalizing, by making the church softer, easier to be a member of, well, it's not working. And it's not going to work because it's not being faithful to Christ. We have to be faithful to Christ to, to ensure, uh, as a prerequisite for turning things around. Fidelity is always fruitful. Faithlessness is always fruitlessness. And that's what we see in Germany par excellence. And if they want to go down that road, um, well, it's going down the road of almost certain extinction in a couple of decades. Yeah. I mean, that's that's an example of if, we, if we're over-inclusive. I mean, and we, we don't include Jesus Christ in his teaching. <laughs> we're inclusive. Well, <laughs> and then this over-inclusiveness is opening the doors, but the people aren't walking in. People are walking out. And this is the whole myth that the leftist, liberal, progressive forces inside the church 
or, or at least those who claim to be Catholic, um, they, they simply do not get, they simply do not realise that none of their liberalism is working. The more they liberalise, the more they soften, the more they uh, stop mentioning the four last things, sin, hell, whatever, whatever, uh, the more they're disappearing. So what does that say? And this is, this is what they don't get. You just question whether they want to get it or not. Are they Catholic? Are they Christian? Or, or are they ideologues? And resi uh, resisting traditional Catholicism or actual Catholicism, what it really teaches in favour of this ideology is just, as I said already, leading the church to doom. I mean, it's, it's interesting because the question of identity uh, I was speaking to several people over the years and uh, left the church and I uh, was getting feedback from them. You know, I, I just, I like to get information, live data. It's funny. They always mention uh, they, they felt, you know, the mass was trying to compete with people, trying to compete with the world and, you know, trying to keep us entertained. They weren't spiritually nourished. Um, I mean, th that's the problem when we lose our identity for the sake of trying to be inclusive to keep elements of the world. I mean, I, I like to extrapolate this principle to if you lose your identity personally, if I lose my identity, mm -hmm. who I am, people aren't going to respect me. If you lose your identity or if an organization loses its identity, if McDonald's was trying to uh, compete with uh, an, a, a pizza shop and started watering down its identity, no one would go there. You know, if a particular, if a Lebanese restaurant was trying to make, you know, focus on trying to be more like an Italian restaurant or, or something else, people won't go there. People go for what's good. You know, let's take food, for example. When we want good pizza, we go to the Italian places, the traditional Italian wood fire places. When we want yeah. Lebanese food, we find the best. We look for the authentic places. That's what people want. So when, when, when we want Catholicism, people are flocking to the parishes that really are centered on doing the liturgy well and catechesis well. Um, that's always the case in the, the traditional Latin mass and other good parishes, you know, and lots of, uh, you know, strong Maronite parishes. And uh, I think the loss of identity in trying to be inclusive of other ideas Kills your identity and people, you water and debase yourself to the point of extinction. And that's what we've seen well, over 60 years. Our Lord Jesus Christ never founded the church to be a replica of the world. Okay. Mm -hmm. He founded the church to be in contradiction to the spirit of the world. He founded the church to be in competition with the world, but to be the, the light of the world, because he's the light of the world and the church is to continue his mission. So what the church, the only identity the church should have is to reflect Jesus Christ, to proclaim Jesus Christ, crucified, died, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, alive now at the right hand of the Father, and mm -hmm. to proclaim the teachings of Christ. If we're going to water that down, or we want, if we're embarrassed about that, if we want to shed that identity, again, we are doomed. Look what's happened to religious life. From the Yes, the, again, the Second Vatican Council never said anything about throwing off your habits or clerical garb, right? But they many did that in the in the decades following the Second Vatican Council. Where are those religious orders now? Where are those seminaries now? Emptying and closing. 
which ones are growing, which ones are thriving. They're small in number, but they are growing, are those who have identity. They wear their habits and they try to be faithful to their religious rule or their priestly vocation. And all those orders that turn their back on their, the charism of their founder are declining, diminishing, and disappearing. And only those that are faithful to the original charism uh, have any life left in them. Again, that says a lot. But again, so many do not want to take in that message, don't want to hear that, and they want to persist in their ways, and they will become an empty house. The concept of empty house is found in the Old Testament. And it's a it's a it's a condemnation on those who have turned their back on God, who become unfaithful. They become an empty house, right? Faithfulness equals fruitfulness, to repeat myself. Exactly. That's very, very true. And we've seen that over the past 60 years, and we've seen what's growing as a result of identity and keeping the faith and keeping identity, and it's growing. And what's being cut off is, you know, when we lose our identity and compromise. And so, I mean, these are this is an example of what inclusion you know, just over this over-inclusiveness to the detriment of keeping your identity, keeping the faith can do. But <laughs> let's speak about what inclusion actually is. Let's define it now. Uh, what is inclusiveness in its proper inclusiveness context? Yeah. It's God's will that all be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. All be saved. That's inclusiveness and come to the knowledge of the truth. God said, go baptize all nations, no exception. So in God's plan, all are to be members of the church, all are to be members of Jesus Christ, all are to walk on the road of salvation. But he didn't do that himself. He established the church and commissioned the apostles and every generation since to carry out that work on his yeah. behalf in his name. That's inclusiveness, but it's inclusiveness in the context of human freedom and inclusiveness in uh, that's conditional upon repentance. And the Jesus revolution, as I like to call it, it's not the Jesus revolution of the 60s and 70s that we talk about emanating, that had its origins in the United States, but I'm talking about Jerusalem AD 30 onwards. The Jesus revolution is a revolution of purity, fidelity, humility, sacrificial love, this is what is attacked today by the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution is tearing up the rule book, tearing up all morality, redefining love, redefining marriage, uh, extinguishing birth rates, warring against children, whatever. And it's replacing fidelity with adultery, replacing marriage with fornication, replacing love with lust. This is what is the primary problem today. When we look at Germany, you mentioned Germany. Why is Germany the way it is? The Catholic Church, and by the way, the Lutheran Church is the same. Why is this the case in Germany? Because they've swallowed the sexual revolution. People who swallow the sexual revolution are people who don't believe in the seriousness <sighs> of sexual sin. Sexual sin is not an issue for them. You look at all the issues, all the, what the Germans want, who they want to be included are all the people engaging in some form of sexual sin. The fornicators, those who are in adultery, 
or remarried in marriages not within the church without a prior annulment. They want to include um, people who are in same-sex relationships um, or polyamorous relationships or transgenderism, whatever, whatever. And they want all these people included as they are. You know the song, you know the hymn, Come As You Are. Come as you are, right? That's the battle hymn Sing it of for the us, Robert. sexual Sing revolution. It for us. You don't want me to ruin your video, okay? <laughs> yeah. I've got my own version, which is rather humorous, but could scandalize some people. Right? <laughs> but the come as you are mentality is contrary to the the Jesus's command. Repent and believe in the gospel. Come as you are means is saying you don't have to repent. Just come as you are. Well, Jesus met people where they're at, but he didn't leave them where they're at. Right? Yeah. He, so it's come as you women. are, leave differently. Yeah. Like he met the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. He met St. Mary Magdalene, right? He met so many others. And yeah, he met them where they were. Okay. But he didn't leave them where they were. They repented. They turned around. They believed in Jesus. They believed in the gospel. They became, at least St. Mary Magdalene, as we know, became a saint. And this is the this is the message for us today that we have to repeat again and again and not let it be forgotten. Inclusion without repentance is a self-deception. Inclusion without repentance is deceiving ourselves and worst of all, deceiving the person we want included. Right? It's some type. It's said to be some type of mercy that we include all these categories of peoples unconditionally. Radical inclusion means let them all in as they are. Let them all in without repentance. Well, I'm sorry, you are deceiving yourself and you're deceiving them because you're not really following Christ's injunction to exhort people to repentance. Now, that's different to doing personal apostolate with people where... We could uh, become friends with people. Um, we, we're living the spirit of gospel ourselves, and then we're compelled to love other people and be friends with them and work with them on a personal level uh, to the goal of conversion, converting them. But we always know from the beginning that, you know, if, there, if someone is living in sin publicly and openly, that we need to call them to, to change and repent. But... We, we can work with them, but we're not meeting them at the door and say, welcome, you know, stay as you are. It's come as you are, but don't stay as you are. Let's, mm. let's, let's change. And added to all that, we want to give all these people <clears throat> holy communion without repentance, holy communion without change. Now, I've just read 1 Corinthians 11 again, St. Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians about proper reception of communion and his warnings well, in his statements there that, yep. you know, some of you are sick and some of you have died because you have been unfaithful in the, you know, you've engaged in unworthy reception of communion. You have not discerned the body of the Lord. You've sinned against, if they've received his, uh, the bread and the wine consecrated, now his body and blood, they've received it unworthily. They haven't discerned the body of the Lord and they've sinned against the body and blood of the Lord. That's why some of you are sick and some of you have died, St. Paul says. Now, these radical inclusion people today say, well, that's a dubious text in St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, well, without providing any evidence. 
Uh, they say it's dubious because it's contrary to their revolutionary agenda, which is to let everyone in, be included and receive communion without change. And of course, this is scandalous. This is sacrilegious communions, and it is scandalous because it's it's, it's putting out there publicly the idea that you can re receive our Lord even though you don't want to obey our Lord. And that's the great con scandal and the great contradiction. I mean, it's funny in this ideology, everyone's included except Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, and of course, those who want to be faithful to him and those who want to, so so to speak, follow the original injunction, original injunction and exhort others to repentance and to always give a reasoned explanation for the hope that is in us and to catechize faithfully. Those yeah, in radical inclusion seems not to include Catholics who are Orthodox, who are faithful. They're the ones who seem to always be marginalized, disempowered, uh, removed from their positions, sacked from their jobs, never, you know, faithful Catholics need not apply. I've seen it so, so many times uh, in, in the last 40 years or so. And it doesn't seem to be getting much better. Well, let's be faithful and um, let's see... Let's now hone in on the idea of balancing this. We want, look, the, the, uh, where we want to actually be mm. faithful to the gospel and call everybody to repent, come as you are, hear the message of the gospel, what, uh, uh, and repent and change your life. We, we don't want to exclude people because we want to save souls. We want to save these people uh, who are living in sin. And we're all sinners. And we all want to save our soul and save people who are not living for a, a, a chaste life, for example, openly and publicly, for example. We want to call these people. We want to save their soul. We have an interest to save their soul and do apostolate with them. We want to, we want to bring them to Christ. We want them to repent of their sins. We don't want to exclude them and bar them from the message of the gospel. But as well, we don't want to uh, welcome them to communion and say, "Oh, we'll just let's uh, let's disrespect our Lord, turn a blind eye to our Lord, who we're trying to serve." And and we don't want to turn a blind eye to our Lord when dealing and explaining and trying to live by example. And these people are not not strangers; they're our friends, they're our family members, they're our colleagues who have questions and. Uh, 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 and through friendship, we can develop a relationship with them and help them to come closer to Christ. But Robert, how do we balance this? Because you got one side of things where you got the 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 traditional Orthodox, you know, hundred percent Catholic mindset, but it's very staunch and militant to the point where it bars any kind mm. of evangelical endeavor or mm. openness to actually drawing these people genuinely to the gospel, mm. which is what we're supposed to do. But then you have mm. this other side here that's just trying to tear away <laughs> and liberalize everything. Oh, come as you are. Don't worry about Jesus. Nothing to see here. You know, <laughs> Don't mind him. How do we find the equilibrium, mm. the balance that we're supposed to be? Op uh, you know, be faithful teaching of the church, repent and believe. But again, draw people to repent and believe. How do we get the balance? Well, I mean, it's a real balance that we've got to achieve. That's here. right. Well, firstly, let's avoid the extremes of the ultra-liberalism and the pharisaism of the, yeah. of the other end. 
Um, yeah, the balance is always somewhere in the middle and truth is always in the middle. Firstly, when it comes to balance, much of what you said is part of the balance equation, so to speak, because those who are on the progressive side, the leftist side, the liberal side, actually, they don't engage in preaching. They don't engage in uh, seeking converts. In fact, they abhor that. They don't engage, they don't engage in uh, apostolic activity. They don't engage in, um, you know, uh, apologetics or evangelical work. And that's part of a big part of the imbalance that they have that they don't realize or actually they don't want to. Have. So yeah. part of the balance is that we proclaim the gospel, point one. Point two, we proclaim it to all and sundry without exception. Here's, we don't proclaim it to those who are already faithful and, and, you know, and in the church and doing the right thing. They don't need to hear the initial proclamation. They're already, they've already heard it. They're already baptized. They're already in the church. They're already receiving the Eucharist. They're already believing and teaching, etc. We we have we give it out to everyone, come what like Jesus Christ did to all and sundry, from the rich to the poor, to the powerful, to the weak, to the faithful, to the sinner, to the prostitute, the tax collector, the Gentiles, the Samaritans, whatever. So that's part of the balance. We don't hold the preaching back from anyone. The part of the balance again, though, is to always we have to move their con you have to uh, enliven their conscience. We have to turn their conscience on. We have to make them realize. We have to give them that moment, that awareness, that conviction that they are actually not in a good place. Mm -hmm. But it's not to condemn them or not to scare them or not to force them to come or to walk away or to run away, but it's to make them realize, hey, I need to change. I was in that place once. I am in that place, revisit that place every day when my conscience tells me, Robert, you weren't that good. You dropped the ball here. You failed there. You, you were rude there. You were angry there. You were uh, whatever, whatever, right? So we need part of the balance is making people realize they are not in a good place spiritually or morally. Then uh, if if the, if the opportunity opens, we lead them to where they should be and give them the advice and the guidance. What, what's the next step for them? Okay. If they show resistance, if they push away, then we've got to avoid the pharisaism, the harsh judgment, the condemnation, the sense of triumphalism or superiority. You know, you know, we shut the door on you, go away. I don't think God ever shuts the door on people while they're still alive, though they got to everyone has to make sure they don't keep resisting God's grace. But sometimes God withdraws grace as an act of mercy. So to not exacerbate that's per, that person's ultimate punishment. But uh, yeah, well, always love. And that's hard. Loving is hard. Unselfish love is hard. You know, I know someone, I've been trying to work on them, someone close to me that I love dearly. And I've somehow got in a, in a good place where no matter what, I'm going to be, always talk nice to them, be patient with them and just show love and just give them little reminders. And keeping the love pipeline open and flowing is important as part of the balance rather than being frustrated, angry, condemnatory and cutting the person off some people they'll get they're going to cut themselves off 
some people don't want to hear you they want to listen to you and they turn their backs and that you get you have to take the message get the message and move on but yeah. when those when those who are somewhere still in the gray zone in the middle patience love and it, it was always part of the balance and in the end if they don't cross the line you leave it to god you just leave judgment to god right in the end um, and I, I think that's the balanced approach. But I don't know whether we all, all of us in the church want that approach. We're deceiving ourselves again into thinking that, yeah, open the doors, tell them they're welcome, but tell them that don't tell them they have to change and they'll flock in. But I don't see any of them flocking in. Not happening. Not happening because it's not supported by God's grace. This attitude. Well, let's 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 um, let's be where we need to be, which is in the middle, you know, not not being militaristic and blocking, you know, any uh, um, ability to evangelize and bring people in. Um, let, let's be inclusive, but let's be uh, uh, let's call to conversion and and have that maintain that balance. I, I think you're being conscious of that balance all the time, you know, dealing with a colleague, for example, who you're friends with. Um, and then, you know, they discover, hey, well, you go to church on Sunday. Oh, I live my faith, you know, and then you learn to respect each other. And then they might be, let's say, living with this uh, somebody who they're not married to. And then and they, they may have been a lapsed Catholic, for example. Let's um, let's take a scenario there. And then you could uh, grow in friendship with them. And then you could actually... Um, you can actually speak to them about, you know, marriage, you know, the whole idea of marriage. And I, I think friendship, I think, is the the practical means of conversion because it's through friendship that you have a relationship there. There's no militaristic approach trying to fight mm. the left and the right. And then mm. that's, that allows you to then progress and, you know, share the gospel to them because they're, they've... Um, they, they they're well dispensed to receive it so i mean it really is that balance robert i, I really think you know from my experience the, the um the importance of friendship should never <clears throat> be underestimated. i think um it's an essential if i've ever been an instrument in anyone's conversion it's in the context only of friendship when there were you know harsh words, strident comments, condemnatory comments, you know, scorn, mockery, insults. Uh, sorry, nothing ever happened by way of conversion of anybody, right? People, I have a, I put it in these terms. The Holy Spirit's God, but we can frustrate the, the work of God, the grace of God, through our own rejection or our own bad behavior. This is what we've got to be conscious of. Holy Spirit chooses not to work or doesn't work in the context of conflict, raised voices, aggression, okay. insult. Um, so we've got to have the we human virtue. So we, yeah, have, we to have to create an atmosphere. Okay. We have to create the circumstances uh, in which the Holy Spirit can work effectively, and that's the circumstance or the context of friendship. Exactly. Okay, so using human reason, creating a, a context so the Holy Spirit can... So, the, so using human virtue and the, uh, having good virtuous, yeah. being virtuous ourselves, good human virtue with our friends, 
dispenses us to dispenses them to receive the grace of God. So that's our part. Yeah. Um, only, only if we're friends will you yeah. trust me, listen to me, give give me time to listen to me, and that is what is necessary. That they're the conditions. That's the environment necessary for the Holy Spirit to be there working between us and on you, so that you'll be open to what I'm saying if I'm trying to convince you of the truth of the Catholic faith. Okay. Okay. That's actually funny. I, I remember watching in the movie Thomas Beckett. I don't know if you've seen the, the scene in the movie Thomas Beckett of the excommunication scene, and that was uh, <laughs> very funny. They were walking in, and he was proclaiming, you know, uh, excommunicating um, the... Um, <laughs> one of the lords the barons <laughs> very militaristic and it's uh yeah that's not the that's the complete opposite of inclusion isn't it <laughs> that's it's saint paul in the in the saint paul the incestuous corinthian he did in a sense excommunicate him and only after that individual showed repentance tears of repentance did saint paul indulge given indulgence that is remitted that temple punishment of excommunication and allowed him back into the um, full life of the church. So we see there a practical example of it. Hey, you're not an unconditional member of the church. Okay, you can't be a follower of Christ and then insist that you've got some type of right or privilege to be in an, an, in an adulterous relationship. There's exactly. a practical reality of it, yeah. I mean, let's now go into the three practical tools. What are the three practical tools for us to take action in this area? Really, and balance ourselves and find that good balance of mm -hmm. call people to repent, but again, do it in a way that's relevant to bring people. Because sometimes I think it, it, it often is our pride and our and our, our insecurity sometimes that that, you know, makes us get angry and get defensive. You know, I remember when I came back to the Catholic faith personally, when I used to see Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, or Mormons, you know, and I used to get in tough conversations with them, you know, and mm. you feel somewhat threatened and you want to, you want to, you want to fight for the faith. And... Yeah, if I've been through all that and that's true, that's a phase we all go through and it's probably a necessary phase. Maybe it's a Lebanese thing. So. <laughs> Perhaps it is. It's a temperamental thing. But it's, uh, I think everybody I know has some kind of uh, desire to, or, or some insecurity there that, you know, when we're sharing our faith, mm. we, we want to balance, we want to, we want to fight or be insecure or uh, about, or we get too passionate about it. I think this is coming from us. We, we need to find the balance and that's what we need to do. We need to proclaim the gospel. That's first priority. And second is, or is there an actual order, Robert, before we go into the three practical tools? Is there an order? Do we just go for preaching the gospel and who cares about the means, you know? Who cares about doing it in a way that's socially good, you know, or a way that people can understand or relate to? Um, does, 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 the, does the message come first before the, the inclusiveness or seeking to include people or be uh, pastoral towards people well the message certainly has to come first yeah. because what's the point of um 
being pastoral just for the sake of being pastoral. It's a secular activity. There's no message that precedes it, you know, the gospel message. It's the first point here is is invita is invitation. I mean, that's the first practical point. Um, we have we we that invitation doesn't have to be expressly given immediately. Um, friendship can precede the invitation. And that, I was invited to the Billy Graham Crusade of 1979 by a friend. And I went because I trusted that friend. Now, we're talking about inviting people here to Catholic events and Catholic speakers, of course. And friendship, uh, you know, probably is the best prerequisite before we, uh, uh, we, have, we offer the invitation. And then we offer the invitation. And it, it, is, it is always important how we do things. I think... That you know, we can't come across as extremists or fanatics, or we can't come across in ways that turn off people. We have to come across in a civil manner, in a respect respectful manner, in a manner that's not offensive or uh, you know overly bearing or putting unwanted pressure. You know, friendship, friendly invitation. You know, leave it open for them to accept or reject. Um, and if they do accept that invitation, yeah, that's the next step. And we have to maintain that person on the road by respect and patience and uh, and teaching. Though. We have to throw that in. We have to be authentic witnesses to the truth if we want to avoid this false inclusion or this false mercy. Um, we have to eventually make it clear to the person that we're uh, friends with, that we're witnessing to, that... Uh, we've invited that, hey, you know, you're not in the best place. You're not in the place where you should be, uh, you know. And, you know, if you want to come along this road, further along this road of, you know, fidelity to Christ and the teaching of the Catholic Church, well, you know, you need to start doing this or stop doing that. And that has, and I've seen that happen and I've seen that work. Um, yeah. I saw it happen and work with me. But I, I remember one thing very well. I didn't want to go at other people's pace. Yep. I felt implicit need in me to go at my pace. So yeah, exactly. I remember very early on, yeah, very early on, I had people trying to push me to say this prayer, this devotion, say this litany, and then pile it on me every day. And I remember once adding it all up, and it came to, oh, 30 minutes of prayer a day, and I was angry. And I felt imposed upon. And I thought, I don't have the time for this. So we always have to be mindful that we bring people along uh, yeah, at their pace. Um, you know, we're, we're not meeting them where they're at and keeping them where they're at, but we have to move them to where they should be. But we have yeah. to be at a, a, take into account their, their pace, their circumstances, et cetera. And sometimes, look, and that's the risk we run is we might make them a human mistake and say, oh, and push someone a bit too much you know we might think that you know we're running them nice and smoothly helping our friends to grow closer to christ but then we overwhelm them and we that's the risk of life you know that's the risk of waking up every day it's risk of going to work you know you could ruffle someone's feathers but as long as we're doing everything we can to work with the person where they're at um and being conscious of how they feel and listening I think we we can have a good smooth relationship in trying to uh, do apostolate with them. Uh, but let's go into mm -hmm. our three practical tools for the week to take action. How can some? What are some three practical tools 
for us to uh, really get kick-started in improving our approach to evangelizing, to doing apostolate? Yeah, well, the first one uh, is, is establishing friendship, normal friendship, natural friendship. <clears throat> that establishes the environment of, of trust and where there's trust, the other, the other is willing to listen. And can the Holy Spirit can work better in that type of environment uh, to enlighten, to move, etc. So friendship is an absolute necessity and a, and a, a practical uh, first step in this. Then after a while, well, the other practical thing, we have to be witnessing in our own personal lives because uh, we have to be credible, uh, a credible beacon or a credible light that people can say, hey, I like that person. I, I respect that person. That, that person's living that lifestyle in a, and, you know, and I would like to be like that. So we have uh, a so, prestige with them, you know, or some kind yeah. of respect or rapport. Yeah, yeah that's right. So it's friendship. It's witnessing to truth in our moral life, but also to not be afraid to speak. I think those who want radical in convert, uh, inclusion without radical conversion are afraid to speak the truth. And we need to be able to witness to the truth about certain hard issues on occasions, you mm -hmm. know, uh, to help people move to where they should be in a life with Christ. Mm -hmm. So invitation. Um, okay. And... Yeah, so that witnessing eventually must crystallize into a, an invitation. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, there has to come that moment where we're actually asking someone, hey, would you like to come to this youth group or to this talk or to this event or to this camp, this retreat, um, you know, or come over, we've got a prayer gathering in our house or, you know, come to hear this priest at this parish or whatever, or this popular speaker from overseas. We need that invitation moment so we need friendship we need witness we need courage to, to to speak the truth and we need to actually invite uh, I, I once said to a bishop we should have an invitation sunday he didn't take too favorably to the suggestion because i think he was afraid that we'd invite people all in sundry who would then think they could just come to the mass and receive the Eucharist without proper formation or anything like that. But that's not certainly what I meant. But what I meant is that we 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 very poor as Catholics in this area compared to people of other certain other denominations. Absolutely. You know, you know, we should not be afraid to invite. What I really love is um uh, in my building we have <laughs> Uh, a Bible study by some Protestants and I, I see them around and they've invited me many times. And what I love about them is their persistence. Look, I'm very busy and I ha have my own things going on, but I, I can't make their Bible study and I'd love to catch up with a coffee with them. But I love the fact that, that they keep calling me, keep texting me <laughs> and, and they're persistent and they're great about it. And that's what we need to rediscover. This is not, a protestant thing this is not anybody else's thing this is our thing that we are as catholics we have the fullness of truth we just on a cultural level i think after uh the po post 60s and 70s and now into the 2023 and onwards we just got to get enthusiastic and there are so many enthusiastic people that invite people and do apostolate but we've got to ramp this enthusiasm up and keep it consistent keep it up where we're, we're proactive about, you know, doing apostolate with people. We just got to be mm -hmm. proactive.
That's all it what is. What denomination are these people who run this Bible study? Non-denominational denomination. They're their own oh, they're the Bible study at home. Yeah. 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 yeah, and obviously, from from what you're saying, I have a a sense that they're they're persistent because they're trying to convert you out of the darkness of Catholicism. Well, we've already spoken about. I've already I went straight into Matthew sixteen eighteen and the, the fact that the church canonized scripture in the fourth century under Pope Damasus the first in the councils yeah. of Carthage and Hippo, uh, because we needed letters to read at the liturgy, and that's why we have a Bible <laughs> and. I get straight into that stuff, you know, the foundational, uh, and th they were interested, you know, they wanted to discuss, which is great, you know, and I love, I love the enthusiasm, you know, and, and, and that's what we have to, I think, adopt, you know, and keep, and, and with many people who have that and many people who don't, you know, to get enthusiastic about it. Doesn't mean we have to mm -hmm. all share the same way of being enthusiastic or proactive. We can just mm -hmm. all have our different ways. Yeah. Mm. All right, that's. I think it's amazing. We we really, uh, we really achieved the balance here in explaining it, <laughs> and I'm very happy. But thank you for being with me, uh, Doctor no, Robert Dad, for another great. Well, episode. thank you for the invitation, and um, and God bless you, and and keep up the great work because it's certainly very important work. And don't forget to subscribe to the Catholic Toolbox on podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. YouTube and all social media and the radio and Radio Maria, especially uh, live there every single Tuesday night. And don't forget to go to the Catholic Toolbox Show.com. There's the Catholic Toolbox Show.com and subscribe to our weekly podcast alert. I'm your host and founder. Until next week, God bless, take care, and take action. In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity.